Good morning. This is Barry Knapp with Ironsides Macroeconomics. It's 7.17 a.m. Eastern Time, and I am coming to you from New York City, where we'll, uh, we'll be all week, other than a quick trip to Boston on Wednesday for a client lunch. Our note this week was titled, The Dog That Didn't Bite. Um, that's a reference to earnings season. So we began the note by talking, um, uh, recapping what went on last week, which of course was just a um, absolute smorgasbord, I suppose, of, uh, of incoming data on uh, fiscal policy, on earnings and uh, macro data, as well as the banking problems simmering in the background. We obviously know more, a lot more about that this morning with the JP Morgan takeover of um, the remnants of First Republic Bank from the FDIC. Uh, the next section was about earnings season, the dog that didn't bite. We then wrote about um, GDP and the incoming data a little bit, the new supply side economics was the title of that section. We wrote a review of the wage data, the employment cost index in particular, titled the chicken or the egg, meaning it's a reference to what came first, inflation or wages. Um, we went back and looked again on the at the timeline of the 2011 uh, debt ceiling um, market related sell off, and then uh, wrapped it up with a little bit of a an update on our markets view. So. First section titled Low Expectations um, was primarily a reference to Speaker McCarthy and um, what we thought um, would be his um, ability to get that debt ceiling deal passed. Uh, we had written about this the previous week and how when you go back and look at previous debt episodes, debt and deficit, episodes when the debt and deficit was increasing, 1991, 95, 96, um, 2011, 2013, our view, core of our view was that ultimately the public comes down on the side of fiscal discipline. And so the party that supports that in 91, it was the Democrats. And after that, the Republicans thereafter generally um, does have the public support. And that is one of the issues or key elements to pushing us towards uh, a more responsible fiscal um, outlook. And so we think we're on track for that again. Ultimately, you know, we were asked, is this equity market positive or negative? And in the uh, short run, I suppose, getting a deal done and, and um, forcing the Biden administration to negotiate might mean for more political brinksmanship and a higher probability of a risk-off event. But ultimately, <clears throat> if we're right and there is a debt or deficit deal, um, a deal to cut spending, that would be very good news for the longer term inflation outlook, and that would be uh, equity and bond market positive. So the incoming data last week was fairly mixed. Um, we thought that core PCED or personal consumption expenditure services, less rent of shelter, um, at least our calculation of it had had it coming down from 3.1% annualized to 2.9. So that was certainly good news. Uh, the GDP numbers we did not view as particularly good news. Sure, underlying domestic demand was was pretty okay because it was mostly inventories that caused the weaker than expected headline number. But the details bothered us, weaker investment in particular. I'll come back to that shortly. Case-Shiller house price numbers ticked up. Um, that underscores how the Fed can um, damage both 
demand and supply. And in this case, the damage, the reduction in supply of, of housing is um, a core issue. And so the Fed created a problem that they're going to have a lot of difficulty fixing in terms of driving house prices still 36% above where they were pre-pandemic using the Case-Shiller model. And then the employment cost index was weaker than expected on the headline. <clears throat> so that probably keeps the Fed on track for another 25 this week. 25 basis points, that is. We don't think they should be doing it. But um, again, we'll come back to that. We did get strong earnings, but the banking situation and the chart we added um, around this um, weekly audio summary of our note is um, shows that uh, we're still very much concerned about a contraction in bank credit. And um, um, there is, again, no easy way to fix what the Fed did in 2020 and in 2021, which was put excessive liquidity into the system and force the banking system to buy some case some cases high quality assets at the wrong prices uh in other cases they've accumulated commercial real estate over the course of a decade or more which people like charlie munger have commented on and uh, that is going to be a more intractable problem so one final point on this we thought that the fed's analysis of the silicon valley bank failure was completely misguided um sure bank management's at fault sure regulators didn't catch it but there's no discussion of monetary policy here. That's really at the core of the problem. And the Fed's lack of, of acknowledgement of that really is disquieting to us. If they truly believe that their policy had nothing to do with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, Signature Bank, um, we're, in, we're in deep trouble. There is no true way to separate monetary and macroprudential policy. So moving on to earnings, there was a couple of key differences that we've had uh, over the course of the last year from some of the some of the equity strategists out there that have been looking for 20% earnings declines. One is um, when we look back in history at periods where nominal growth is, is strong, we have much smaller earnings declines. And so strong nominal growth, because earnings are nominal, means that we had this earnings price level shock. And we put the chart in the note to, to uh, demonstrate this, that we do not think that we can or will retrace without a deflationary episode. So we don't think that's likely. And um, we just pushed earnings to a newer, higher level. Now, what that means for the growth rate going forward is something different. We'll discuss that over time. But um, we do think nominal growth environments. And when you look at the big, even the big deep recessions, 73, 75 or 81, 82, the earnings decline was fairly small when Sure, real growth contracted, but nominal growth kept going up. The other key point of differentiation from us and some of those looking for big earnings decline was this price cost dynamic, um, as underscored by prices paid versus prices received to the regional Fed manufacturing surveys and how that negative dynamic for, um, for most of corporate America actually peaked in the fourth quarter of 21 and now we've got the tightest spread between prices paid and prices cost we've had since the end of 2015 when we were going through that oil price collapse and so that's actually a net positive for uh corporate america this year you're seeing it in industrials and we think we'll see it in um, uh, the consumer discretionary sector over time so earnings are tracking right now negative 1.7 percent on four percent revenue 
growth that's a little bit light on the revenue growth side. We'll see if that contracts further, that would be an issue. But surprise at 6.8%, meaning earnings are beating by 6.8% is the best since fourth quarter of 21. When that uh, negative cost, uh, price cost dynamic was at its peak, and um, that's the point when most analysts were missing the operating leverage associated with strong nominal growth. So um, that's for us the real story around all this. The average stock is going down roughly 16 basis points or so on earnings. We assume that means that, um, or as a function of investors still being fairly pessimistic about the outlook, but uh, the tech sector responded quite favorably last week. That was um, uh, good news for us. Our tech technology or sector revisions model that showed technology revisions turning up after last quarter's earnings was the catalyst for our upgrading the group and um, uh, or tech and tech related, meaning communication services and consumer discretionary. So you're short those sectors at your uh, own peril in in the US. You know, we're market weight on it now <clears throat> and we think we need to uh, stay there. Those revisions are still set headed higher. So on to the, um, the GDP report came in at one one versus expectations of two six nominal growth slipped from 6.6 down to 5.1. That's still pretty good nominal growth. Um, inventory subtracted 226 basis points from headline GDP. So real final sales, real final sales to private domestic purchasers improved a lot. Uh, that's good news. Inventories, inventory investment is back to its long-term trend line. So we think the inventory um, destocking process is complete. We haven't seen much evidence of a pickup in uh, in demand, particularly on a global basis. China, before we or after we wrote this, um, China reported their manufacturing PMI number over the weekend, and it was weaker than expected back into contraction territory, underscoring how there's really no pickup in global demand for goods as of yet, at least. The thing, one of the things that really bothered us about this report and why we refer to it as new supply side economics was non-residential fixed investment slowed from 4% down to seven tenths of a percent. Equipment investment contracted considerably. Structures investment went up. And this underscores a policy choice to us. Uh, the government made a decision to not renew the immediate expensing for equipment, which would let the market decide what to invest in. And instead, um, you know, there were a couple of big fiscal plans, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act that funnel money into the semiconductor industry, funnels money into green energy. These are government policy choices. We're really disturbed by the government allocating capital, described it as the fatal conceit, using Hayek's term on that. And um, it's not a particularly rosy outlook for us going forward is that the government should be making these choices. And so that mixture of GDP wasn't particularly favorable from our perspective. Now, on to the wage piece, um, through the first quarter, average hourly earnings, the annualized rate fell 33 basis points. The Atlanta wage, wage tracker went up 30 basis points. We were looking for ECI, employment cost indexes, to settle the debate. It fell seven basis points annualized and is right on top of the average hourly earnings number. So going in the right direction, but still at roughly 5%. The Fed would view that as an un unsustainably high level. Um, they figure productivity is probably running 150 basis points. So that 
translates to a three and a half percent inflation rate. We think this is the wrong way to think about it, but it is how the Fed thinks about it. And that's why we titled the section, the chicken or the egg. There's two Fed policymakers on either side of the hawkish dovish spectrum, Austin Goolsby and uh, Jim Bullard, who believe that um, uh, wages are not playing a big role in uh, determining inflation. But nonetheless, I think that's at at the core of a Fed belief. Um, So that wasn't particularly good news and does push us towards 25 basis points again this week. Um, Going back to 2011, uh, we just wanted to walk through the timeline. On August 2nd, the Budget Control Act was passed. That led to the first two declines in outright outright declines in government spending since the Korean War, and then a 2% cap that stayed in place until 2018 when uh, President Trump cut a deal with Schumer and Pelosi to bust those caps. Um, So that in and of itself was a positive development. But uh, it occurred amidst growth concerns. Four days later, S&P downgraded the U.S. sovereign debt rating. Italian uh, uh, spreads to Italian bond spreads to boons were blowing out from roughly 190 basis points to 390 basis points while this was going on. And then on, a, on August 9th, the FOMC um, was looked to to provide some additional policy stimulus didn't really give any they did change their forward guidance from um, state dependent to time dependent saying they were going to keep rates low until 2013 helped the markets a little bit and ultimately the s p 15 percent decline from august 2nd through august 9th did stop but the market struggled thereafter so um, this is the 2011 analog worth thinking about as we March towards yet another debt ceiling um, uh, battle, at least. So on a broader market outlook, um, which is how we wrapped up the note this week, we're still in a disinflationary environment. The household sector is still in good shape. That's the good news. Our 95 analog, this idea that as the Fed pauses, the market retraces the entire decline and goes on its uh, merry way, is not completely dead. We probably if we were still in the business of publishing explicit um, S&P 500 price targets, like when we were Barclays equity strategists, we'd probably have lowered, you know, our 4,800 or so target, the idea that we'll have a complete retracement to something a little bit lower than that. But, um, you know, listen, the market is at the top of the range. The seasonality is going to get a little worse here. <clears throat> We're, we remain concerned about the banking system. We remain concerned about the liquidity effect of getting a debt ceiling deal done and having a pickup in issuance. Nonetheless, upside calls are cheap. So we're suggesting not to re-engage or put a lot of money to work right here, but have some calls uh, in the portfolio if you're so inclined because um, there is a chance that uh, that the market grinds through all this. So far, it's been doing that. Um, again, we're we're concerned about liquidity. We're concerned about the banking system, but um, sometimes the market surprises us, and that's why we suggested um, those upside calls. We don't see much value in the treasury market here either. So that's it for me this week. Barry Knapp from Ironsides. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you.